and welcome to This Week in James City County. I'm your host, Renee Dolman. On today's episode, we are once again sitting down with our guest, John McLennan, representative for the Roberts District on the James City County Board of Supervisors. Welcome, Dr. McLennan. Morning, Renee. Glad to have you back. Glad to be here. Very good. Well, I know that there was a huge event in your district on Saturday at Anheuser-Busch. Were you there? I was. Uh, I understand there were about 3,000 people there, actually. Wow. And uh, the parking lot across the street from the brewery was pretty well attended. Uh, uh, there were folks there to enjoy Anheuser-Busch's open house. They decided to let people come in and take tours of the brewery. Uh, get an opportunity to see the Clydesdales, enjoy some food and drink, and of course they were making sure that everybody who was getting the alcoholic beverages available uh, met the age threshold. Of course, of course. So lots of people attended. How long has Anheuser-Busch been in James City County? Uh, Anheuser-Busch has been here for about 40 years now, Okay. and uh, they had obviously transformed the county dramatically because at the time they came in, they not only established the brewery, but also Bush Gardens and Kingsmill. Right. And so those three entities really did create a great deal of economic opportunity. They allowed for us to cut the tax rate about in half at wow. that time uh, and brought in lots of new folks and uh, new enterprises in the community. Very interestingly, now, of course, we have uh, three separate entities that uh, all have uh, corporate headquarters outside of Williamsburg and outside of a single family. And so it's a very different kind of environment now. Uh, Still, we work closely with those partners, but it's different from dealing with a single family owned business uh, that had deep interest in the Williamsburg area. Right. What are the others? So Kingsmill is now owned by Escalante, which is a golf community-oriented corporation, and I've been very impressed with their leadership. They've taken a very active role in communicating with the residents of Kingsmill about their plans, uh, getting their feedback, and really opening up the resort to the residents uh, both of Kingsmill and with plans to open it up more broadly for the James City County community in general. Oh, very good, because it was opened a little bit more for the James City County community in a previous ownership. That's right. And then for whatever uh, business reasons they had, the previous owners, Zantara, decided that they really wanted to close in the resort a little Mm -hmm. bit more. I think this is going to be a great move on their part, and they're uh, going to be bringing in the LPGA tournament again for the next year and hopefully continuing with that. They're really going to make a big impact on the community, I think, but do it in a very subtle and respectful way. Mm -hmm. Very good. And then the third corporation? SeaWorld operates uh, both the Bush Gardens and Water Country, which is in York County. Mm -hmm. But uh, they also obviously have decided to invest considerable resources in this park because of its success and because of the attractiveness that the park has always had in the community. Yes, and it's also provided employment to both of my children, which I greatly (laughs) appreciate. (laughs) Right. In fact, uh, my wife, when she was in high school, worked at the at Bush Gardens when it first opened up. That's so. great. Yeah. I think a lot of people can probably at one point say that they worked there yeah. or cl- knew somebody who did. That's right. That's, That's right. wonderful. But Bush is, is actually uh, talking about, Anheuser-Busch is actually talking about the possibility of opening up on a more frequent basis for the community to let okay. them enjoy their product and to enjoy the setting that they have. It was just so great to see the Clydesdales out there on Saturday. They're huge. They are. They are and very beautiful animals that uh, really attract a lot of interest and attention. Well, very good. So I understand going off of the Anheuser-Busch event, I understand that you have been very active in the High Growth Coalition. 
Can right. you talk a little bit about that? I'd be glad to do that. I'm currently serving as the chairman of the Coalition of High Growth Communities. Okay. And that's an organization that's now been around for about 19 years. It started actually the very first year that I came on the board of supervisors, and I've been involved that entire time with them. It's a group of about a dozen or more, depending on the year, communities across Virginia, the local governments that are experiencing faster than normal growth rates. And our objective is to communicate with the General Assembly and the executive branch of the state government about the particular problems that we're experiencing as we try to accommodate high rates of growth and to make sure that that growth is uh, reflected in our communities in a way that maintains the standards of the community. So what are some examples of some of those issues that we're experiencing? Well, of course, uh, as residential development comes along, it generally doesn't pay for itself in terms of the new services that are required the new infrastructure and capital expenditures that localities have to make. For instance, we have to build new schools, we have to hire additional police officers, we have to build more parks and recreation facilities, we have to expand our water supply. And all of those things cost a lot of money. And for residents who already live in a community, they tend to be concerned about the idea that they're paying for growth, which in some cases they feel is really detracting from the nature of the community in which they've been living for many years. So the High Growth Coalition has tried to make sure that that there are some ways for us to mitigate the impact of this new development by supporting proper legislation uh, that allows a developer to offset some of the costs Mm -hmm. of their uh, construction and new residents, and generally to help us find ways to mitigate these impacts uh, by allowing the state to provide us with assistance, to give us a little bit more flexibility in what we can and can't require, allowing us to comment on things like uh, stormwater regulations and how to deal with septic systems in communities that are rural but turning into urban or suburban communities Mm -hmm. uh, where you really have a more challenging time relying on old systems for disposing of wastewater. Mm -hmm. So those are some examples of the kinds of things that we're doing. And of course, we're in in league in this instance with places like Loudoun County up in Northern Virginia, Mm -hmm. one of the fastest growing counties in the nation. Prince William County, which is one of the most rapidly diversifying counties in Virginia. We're active with Albemarle County. And now we've gotten some interest among cities in particular because Actually, cities in Virginia have been growing at a fairly rapid rate. Hmm. Uh, Places like Richmond and Fredericksburg, Norfolk, have seen a lot of people interested in returning to those downtown areas. Well, I want to go back to the proffers. Yes. Because I know that in James City County, we used to have proffers, but now we don't. Can you explain that? Sure. In 2016, the General Assembly passed legislation that effectively made it much more difficult for counties to communicate to developers what they expected in terms of mitigation of their impact. The proffer system was one in which when a developer came to a locality and asked for a rezoning, the locality could um, ask that developer to take into account the effect that that rezoning was going to have on the cost of doing business, uh, uh, the cost of government in the county. Mm and could suggest a certain level of proffer payment uh, per unit to the local government in order to offset those costs. 
Can you think of an example of something that people could see, whether it's a sidewalk or a park or something that came as a result of a proffer? Sure. Well, actually, helping to offset the cost of building a new school uh, is a critical component to this. Here in James City County, our proffer program actually did focus just on schools and required that a developer would come into town with a proposal that required a rezoning. Uh, We would ask them to take a look at our proffer schedule and it would mean that somewhere around ten to fourteen thousand dollars per unit should be contributed to the county in order to offset the cost of building a new school, adding an addition to a school, something of that nature. But there are other kinds of proffers out there as well and some people may be familiar with the Stonehouse development. Mm -hmm. They came in a while ago and asked for a revision of their master plan. And as part of that agreement, they proffered to us a $1,000 per unit payment into a a fund to deal with affordable housing. And so since they have 3,000 approved units still to be constructed, Mm -hmm. that should generate over the next decade or so about $3 million dollars in funding to the county that we can then use to provide uh, affordable housing for our lower income workers, our service employees who have a hard time finding affordable housing in the community, and other ways in which we can deal with the affordable housing problem. Okay. Why did the General Assembly change the proffers? Well, some home builders felt that uh, some localities across the state, and I would not say James City County would fall into this category, but some were requiring excessive proffers, either in terms of the amount of money, or in some instances they were asking for conditions that they felt were unreasonable, like a certain standard of quality in the construction of, say, kitchens or bathrooms. There were very few places that were doing that, and they were doing it, they would justify their actions on the basis that they wanted to make sure that they knew what price point certain kinds of development would uh, be coming into the county. But for whatever reason, the uh, home builders pushed through some legislation that had that impact. Now, The Coalition of High Growth Communities held a conference in late June this year to talk about the impact. And what we found was that many localities were basically saying, under these circumstances, without the availability of the proffer system, uh, we were just going to have to stop approving rezonings. Mm. Uh, Now, that's certainly not what the home builders had intended. Sure. And it's something that we don't want to be in a position of saying we're just never going to approve any more rezoning. There's obviously going to be some kind of uh, a pressure on communities like this to grow to some degree. Right. But what we came to the conclusion about at that conference was that maybe it's time to reconsider a system that's used in a lot of other states called impact fees. Okay. So a proffer only comes into play when a developer comes in and says well, I'd like to build a new residential development on this parcel of land uh, that is currently not zoned to allow for a residential development. Okay. With impact fees, any time a new residence is constructed in the community, whether it had to be rezoned, the land had to be rezoned or not, you would receive a payment uh, to offset the impact of that new construction on the county's uh, expenses. Okay. And so what that does is it more fairly spreads the cost across a larger base of new homes. So that brings down the individual unit cost. And it doesn't require us to uh, deal with the question of making a deal between 
a developer asking for a rezoning and our need to find some resources to cover the costs of, of residential growth. Are the developers on board with that? Do you know? Well, they supported legislation a few years ago that would have substituted impact fees, but what they wanted was a level of impact fee so low that it wouldn't really allow localities to recoup the kind of money that they would need to build new schools, build a new police station, put in a new park, and so forth. Okay, so it's really just a negotiation, trying to find out that spot that the developers are right. happy with, the jurisdictions are happy with. That's exactly right. And so the uh, the coalition is going to be partnering with the Virginia chapter of the American Planning Association to do some studies on the question of what other states are doing and how those systems have worked in the other states and try to find the effective balance point. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard, but has anybody ever compared proffers to bribes? Well, yes. Actually, one member of our board did at one point. And uh, I think that what uh, folks would say is that, uh, you know, you're, you're asking for money in order to allow for this rezoning. And the response basically, I think, uh, that makes sense is this is the system that we've been given by the state okay. in the past, the only way in which we can address these kinds of impacts. And uh, it's not really a bribe because if a developer doesn't produce them, the board can still approve the project if it's not uh, deemed to, to have too bad an impact. Okay. And one of the things that we did in our proffer policy was to make sure that if a builder was coming in and saying, well, I want to put up housing that's really going to be accessible to folks who have lower income levels, that uh, we recognized that that was a benefit to the community and actually either reduced or eliminated proffers on those homes. So our affordable housing policy does take that into account and make sure that it doesn't really create this impact. You know, it's, it's a tough situation when folks are coming in and, and imposing a new cost on the community and existing residents are saying, well, we really have been paying into the county for all these years. We've built the schools and parks and other facilities that have made this an attractive community. And now we're being asked to pay for the uh, additional growth that this uh, uh, earlier expenditure has allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. I know we have citizens that are saying growth needs to stop. No more right. growth. A lot of the growth that we're seeing, ground being broken on, that has been approved that's years right. ago, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have uh, still over 10,000 approved lots sitting out there in the county that uh, okay. do not require any kind of legislative approval. So an impact fee program would actually be quite beneficial from that perspective if we'd be able to go in and spread that cost across the entire base of, of homes. And I think that would be a fairer system. Uh, it just needs to include the ability of the localities to recover uh, somewhere close to what the cost of that new residence is going to impose in terms of capital construction on the county. Well, this will definitely be something interesting to keep an eye on during the upcoming legislative session. Right. And we'll be hoping that at least we could get a study commission get going this year uh, with the hope that uh, perhaps by the following legislative session, we could produce a bill that uh, would have broad uh, approval uh, both among localities and developers. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? 
Well, let's see. I think we've seen in the fall a lot of uh, great activities that are on the agenda. Um, I know we just had our Harvest Festival here in the county. Yes. I understand that was a great success. Yes. I wasn't able to get out there, but I heard that uh, there was a lot of fun and pretty warm day. Yes. uh, (laughs) September in Virginia, you never know. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And we've still got another one of our Jamestown Jams coming up in early October, the last of the year. Uh, and we're moving into that season when people are be enjoying things like uh, Hollow Scream over at Bush Gardens and the whole Christmas season uh, yes. coming along as well. So It's hard to believe how quickly those things fly by. It is indeed. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a trivia question for you about the Baltimore Orioles. When you were with us back in May, I had a few, and you hit them all out of the park. <laughs> Check out that baseball yeah, metaphor. I'm pretty that's, proud. That's pretty good. I'm pretty proud good. of that. Uh-huh. I'm proud. We have to work on our pitching, though. That's not. That's what's letting us down oh, this time around dear. with the oh, Orioles. Dear. Okay. <laughs> what's their record right now? They just fell a little bit below 500 okay. uh, in the last couple of uh, series, that, but one yesterday. So, Yay, very um, good. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, in what year did the Orioles first win 100 games in the season? Oh, boy. First year they won, I would, uh, I'm going to guess, uh, 1969. Exactly. Whoa. Yay, very good. <laughs> Impressive. Uh-huh. And you were a fan in 1969, I'm sure. Well, you know, actually, I was not yet. Oh. Because I became an Oriole fan when I moved to Baltimore for graduate school. Okay. And that was a little bit later than that. Now, did you have a team before that? Uh, yes, my original team was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, okay. uh, then they deserted Brooklyn sure. uh, for Los Angeles. Uh, so I switched my allegiance to the New York Mets. Boy, oh. talk about a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, once I moved to Baltimore and students at Johns Hopkins University, where I was doing my graduate work, were able to go to games for basically a dollar a game. Oh, how nice. and it was about a two mile walk down okay. uh, from the university to the stadium, the old Memorial Stadium, then uh, I became a real fan of the Orioles. All right. Well, I have a few fun questions just okay. so people can get to know you a little bit better. These mm-hmm. are different than the ones that you had in May. All right. And it has nothing to do with zombies anymore. I don't know if you've heard <laughs> about my zombie questions. No. Yeah, uh, no. I uh-uh. can't ask zombie questions anymore. Okay. But do you have... That's probably a good thing. It's probably mm-hmm. a good thing. Do you have any special collections? Do I have any special collections? Uh, you know, I don't. I I do collect a lot of political memorabilia. Okay. Um, not not in a very systematic way. For sure. But, uh, uh, I like to to see the way uh, candidates uh, present themselves to the electorate. Partly because my professional mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. my my. Um, uh, I'll be leaving here to go teach my class on political parties. And oh, so okay. That's a good place to talk about those uh, kinds of things. Yes. Um, and I would say the other um, uh, kind of collection that I would have is uh, not really a collection per se. It's just a kind of uh, interest in some of the kind of wacky humor of the 60s and 70s. Oh, okay. So, you know, okay. things like uh, I, I grew up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, uh, nice. And... Second City Television and okay. some and Monty Python and Very all good. those kind of offbeat humor programs. Very good. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, back to the political memorabilia. Yes. Do you have one piece that you consider to be your prize possession? Well, I would say probably uh, Kennedy for President button. Okay. Uh, and that's largely because... Uh, 
when I was very young, John Kennedy was running for president, okay. and that really was a powerful factor in influencing my career choices and uh, my interest in politics more generally. Okay, very good. What is your favorite meal? Uh, you know, my wife always says that uh, there are people who live to eat uh-huh. and some people who eat to live, uh-huh. and I'm in the latter category. Oh, okay, okay. So, so food know, is fuel. Okay. Food is fuel. It's fine. You know, most is is okay. Um, uh, I like a lot of our local restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, very good. Um, I, just about every weekend, um, you can find my wife and I at the Chickahominy House, for instance, oh, uh, where we enjoy breakfast uh, quite a bit. And, but uh, usually it's more a question of, you know, where's a, a good place to run into folks that you know mm-hmm. or what's a good opportunity to see what's happening in town. Mm-hmm. Very good. Or to avoid cooking dinner that night. Yes. Which, well, which is usually my task. Yes. That's, so. yeah, I, I'm with you on mm-hmm. that. All right. Last question. What is the first thing that you ever bought with your own money? Huh. Not a good one. Yes. It's very good. Um, I'm not sure. You mean a, a really major thing or it could be, or just something that you just remember. Uh huh. I, you know, I can't really remember too much of that kind of thing. I used, you know, when I was in elementary school, I often would ride my bike to school. Mm-hmm. And on the way home, I would always stop at a candy store, mm-hmm. usually had a cherry or vanilla Coke that was made at the soda fountain. Uh huh. And bought a newspaper. Wow. And, uh, so I really enjoyed looking at a newspaper. Uh, and, and the funny thing was it was always the New York Times. Um, wow. Which uh, um, the one thing I kept missing was there's no comics section right. in this. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise it was a really wonderful window to the world. Wow. So it started back in elementary school then. I think, you know, so, so many times you can actually figure out uh, what people's interests are by the very first kinds of exposures they have and and the things that really they gravitate toward. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Dr. McLennan, for joining us today. My pleasure, Renee. Thanks for your wonderful hosting. Thank you. Well, we will hope to have you back sometime between now and the beginning of legislative season in January so we can get your insights on that. Terrific. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of This Week in James City County. Thank you for listening. Want to make sure you don't miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe on iTunes today or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk with you next week. <laughs>